Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Averick Kelly. This week, we're publishing the second half of the two-and-a-half-hour podcast that we recorded with Dennis Jarima from the Prolonged Field Care Working Group. Last week, we talked about improvised technique for massive hemorrhage, airway, and breathing emergencies. This week, we'll talk about circulation improvisations and how improvised medicine can help during prolonged field care. Now, let's rejoin the ongoing podcast. So, C-circulation, we're going to talk about rehydration, a minimum better best. So, the, the best option is IV solutions. That's kind of the gold standard. But if you don't have them, then you want oral rehydration, which is the better option. And with ORS and, and I mean, that, that's the best option. But if you don't have that, you need to get the, the go to hell option. The minimum option would be dermoclysis and proctolysis. We'll talk about that next. So dermoclysis is when you use a butterfly needle to put fluid uh, into the, the adipose layer of the skin. And the World Health Organization have tons of literature on this. And this saves so many lives every year of people with uh, diarrhea or cholera or something like that. They're infants. You can't get a line in. You don't even have normal saline anyway. And you can't get ORS into the, the casualty. So they use this. And the trick with dermoclysis is you can infuse one milliliter of fluid per site per minute. So that's not rehydration unless you get a whole bunch of butterfly needles and you put them all over the body. And then you can do one mil per site for 10 sites. That's 10 mils per minute. That's what, 600 mils an hour. Is that enough to keep someone alive? Well, I mean, you're at least an adult. Uh, just maintenance fluid is at 125 an hour, roughly. Um, hmm. So you would definitely be over and above maintenance. Um, I guess I would say, what is this year in output? You know, are you are you able to hit your goals um, with that to find out if your if your infusion is is enough? Um, I'm just w- wondering, like, how much, how many, how many sites, how much fluid are you able to kind of set up to do that just through the skin? And why why would you not do rectal fluids instead? That's got to be more comfortable than. And having you know four or five oh. needles going into your muscle, your tissue, and ballooning out because of fluid. So yeah, we'll talk about proctolysis next because there's good science on that. Uh, I've had this done to me in in class numerous numerous times, and it's not that painful. Um, the, the, and one one mil per per minute isn't, and it diffuses, so you're not getting you know uh, in in tactical medicine you have the camelback. Was it the puppy camelback, right? So you get the scruff of the neck of the of the dog and the canine, and you put in 500 mils, and it balloons up. That that's not what you're doing here with this, you know, 22 month old uh, cholera patient. Uh, so one mil per site, it dissipates, and so so you're you're not getting as big. You're right. If you if you put more than one mil, if you screw up, you put seven mils in, eight, ten mils. Oh my God, the pain of that would be horrific, because now you're you're causing tissue damage as you as you infuse that much. So the World Health Organization suggests one mil per site per minute 
And I, I can speak from maybe because I have a lot of adipose as, as pushing 60. I, I have I have a, a survival pack, but um, it, it hasn't hurt. And so the, the original, the, the first injection, you know, as the needle goes in, yeah, that, that stings a bit. But then as long as you put normal saline, it's not going to be pain. If you put sterile water, yes, that's going to be quite painful. Would so, LR? Dermoclysis. Would uh, LR yeah, be okay? Uh, Yep, Ringer's lactate or or nolsiline, uh, Hartman's we call it in, in in Europe Hartman's solution. So yeah, that that works because it's balanced. That's what we're looking for, and and maybe uh, Hartman's or Ringer's would be a better option for a caller or patient anyway, just because electrolyte to, and and imbalance. But um, yeah. there's a lot of research in World Health Organization. This is where we nick this from. It's it's science backed. We're not just uh, having having uh, some crazy ideas here so you can put the and my fan my, my, my favorite spot for me is of course in the belly because um i'm irish and i like a pint and it's, i've got a big big belly it works so you're not going to do this on in in muscle tissue it definitely needs to be sub q and needs to be uh, in the ad adipose if you can so you mentioned procto so let's talk about proctolysis so this also has science most of the case study but we do have some some decent science on proctolysis, Murphy's grip. So you can you can absorb about about half a mil half a half a liter per hour, depending on your size and your um, hemodynamic status. So you can you can you can take up about half a mil per hour rectally, but you have to make sure that you're injecting saline because. Only saline, 0.9% saline, is going to be absorbed by the goblet cells in your large intestine. So that means if I just put water, normal drink drinking water, into the rectum, it's not going to absorb as quickly because the body has to make it not 0.9% before it can start absorbing it into, into the tissues. And on the other side of that is salt water. So salt water is 4%. So if you put salt water rectally, you're going to dehydrate the casualty because water follows sodium, doesn't it? So you got to make sure that you are at 0.9% or 1% saline when you do a rectal infusion. Now, can you, so I've heard, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I've heard that you can just use ORS, like a, any kind yeah, of like Gatorade yeah. or, yeah. or, or something it, like that. As long as it's got salt in it. So the problem with Gatorade, why I don't like those sports drinks, is because ORS, when we make it in class, it tastes like rubbish. It's it's just horrible, isn't it? It's it's salty and it and, and you got potassium in there as well. We 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 give some baking soda in there, and it's just ORS is horrible. And no one's gonna pay money to drink that. So all these sports drinks companies will just put 10 times the salt and the sugar. So you 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 drink it. So you, I wouldn't put um, sports drinks uh, rectally because it's sugar, and uh, uh, you would I would prefer just normal ORS. And I remember in selection they gave us ORS packets. I don't know if they did that for you as well. And when you when you first like week one, uh, well actually we're we're we weren't in the in the woods too much in week one. Week two it started getting really difficult. And the ORS packets started tasting better and better. I remember when, when, when like week, week, end of week one, week two of selection, 
and the same with the the Q course. So the more the longer you're in and and tabbing and working hard, you're losing electrolytes. The more you like the taste of of ORS. So I'd always start with like half half of a normal ORS packet for a canteen, and I would be able to get it down. Like by week three, team week of selection, it tasted like milk. It was absolutely fantastic. And that's just the electrolytes of, of seeping out. Of I mean, I was lucky. I went through in April, so it wasn't like Fort Bragg in, in, in August. Selection must be horrible. But um, what, what month did you go through? Uh, I went to selection uh, probably like October. So it was like a beautiful time to go through selection. Right. However, I went through phase two in like July, which was the opposite Ooh. end. <laughs> so yeah. I 100% understand your your love for ORS in that environment because, you know, you're supposed to mix it in a two liter and sip it. But by the end, mm. I, I was just putting it in a canteen and just loving life. Um, mm. Yeah. And and when we make it in, in Malta in our courses, it, it doesn't taste like milk. <laughs> it tastes awful. And and this is what you need to put in, when you do uh, proctolysis is a is a good ORS if you can. And the how, how you do this. So proctolysis is you 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 need to put a a soft or a malleable type of hose. So a, a camelback. Pipe, uh, camelback hose would be perfect for this because if you have anything that's that's like like an et tube it's kind of stiff isn't it and, and you're just going to risk perforating the bowel if you put something kind of semi rigid in there so it really does have to be something that just kind of wiggles around a bit so iv iv line works i have not had good success on in training on getting it to go up the full 20 centimeters that you need it to go in so the, the rule of thumb is whatever you put in there needs to go 20 centimeters in, which is about two of your palms widths. Um, what is that? 12 inches? It's been so long since I've thought in inch, inches. You want, you, you want it to go in about, about 12 inches, and then you can start infusing. And you, you put in a bolus in about half a, half a liter or until they feel pressure, and then you just wait. And, and you can try putting in more every half hour or so and then they'll let you know if it's so if you put too much in it's going to come back out isn't it yeah well so i think the key want... with that is making sure they're on their left side because i've seen it yeah, where they're on their back, back. they're on yeah. the back and it just comes right back out so if i put them on his out. left side it drops into the descending colon where it kind of boluses and then it gets absorbed the otherwise you're just doing an enema Yep, which isn't helping anyone at all, uh, least of all uh, the medic. Yeah, well, so, I mean, you uh, feel fire, nice and fire. clean. Yeah, <laughs> he does. You don't. Yeah. Um, so a pliable hose that needs to to go up there and make sure that if you cut the camelback hose, you cut it straight across. If you have it kind of at an angle that could be a sharp bit that could uh, cause some some perforate. What you don't want to do. Is your, and and I'm, every proctologist doc who's listening to this right now is freaking out because it's so dangerous. If you perforate the, the bowel, he's dead. If you're in an austere environment, he's dead. There, there's no antibiotics in the world that's going to keep him completely safe. So this is really, really serious. And, and, and make sure that you don't screw this one up. 
Um, maybe a dumb question. Would you be able to do a Foley if you're able to get it somewhat rigid to actually go the direction you want and then infuse through the Foley? Yep. It's, ply it's super pliable, but Foley would be a good one. And, and I would stay as big a French as you can to to hopefully get in the right direction. And, you and can, there's a balloon you, you on the end of it to... Help keep it in place. And there's a balloon on the end of it. There is indeed. Yep. So a Foley would be a good option if you could figure out some way of of getting it up there without it just coiling up. Yeah, without coiling. We discussed this. We're like, okay, so you get a um, a plastic stylet from an ET tube, and what's the chances of of causing perforation? Pretty high, actually. So you got to so tape it. Do you tape it to the stylet and then push it up, or just there's 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 a lot of science on this. We got to figure out the best way to do this because it's really dangerous in a hospital, let alone doing this out in the middle of nowhere. So, um, so I mean, if all you have is a two be two me tip sixty mil syringe, I mean, you can at least just keep putting water up, uh, even though you're not getting twenty centimeters into the rectum. So you can at least try that, and and that's better than nothing. Yeah. Do you teach this on the course? Um, we talk about it. We talk about it. Um, I've yet to do it because um, nobody's volunteering. So, um, but, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of like uh, temperature probes and things being used. Um, I think if yep. you're like, nobody's doing this on the X. You know, so you're in no, a place no, where long field care, kind of, yeah, yeah, you're in a place where you can chill out and be careful. You know, um, I think if you got, if you were able, let's say you did the foley, and let's say you did put a stylet in, um, inside the foley, right, so that yep. everything's covered up, and you can yep. then remove, uh, remove the stylet. Got plenty of lube. So that's a really good idea because you have some of the tri-lumen uh, devices, don't you? That 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 one of the lumens of the foley could be the stylet. Is that what you're saying? Um, that you put the stylet inside yeah, the foley, inside the foley, yes. where the urine would come through. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, um, and you're able to advance it. I mean, I don't know. Was that twenty five inches? 12 yeah. inches at least, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what I tell everybody. But um, <laughs> um, yeah. but you're able to kind of feel that internal sphincter release, okay? Yep. And from there, this kind of Selinger technique, you're just yeah. pushing it through so that you're not Absolutely. You're banging into that curvature from the descending colon into the rectum there. Right. Um, and That's, then... Uh, it, at least try, you know, a 60 cc bolus. Does it does it go in or not? Right. No, I I think that's a, yet another reason I have a foley. How many how many ways do we need to have a foley? Right. Um, available for, for everything. Yeah. So possibly a big one just just for this. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you're talking 500 an hour, like that's not that fast. You know, that's a right. a burn a burn calc. You know, initial bolus. So you're yep. you're still doing what twenty drips a minute, uh, 
20 drips or a minute or so. So like one every three, right. you know, so you're not talking a rapid infusion. Um, right. You don't have to, I don't think you would have to bolus it as long as the max is 500, you know, so set your drip for that and, um, you know, start measuring. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, that's a good idea. And I, I've never actually done a drip. I've only done boluses just so I yeah, have, have uh, a good idea what's going in. But yeah, you could you could put a drip in and keep an eye on it. You know, absolutely. Or I mean, of course, you can bolus it. Um, but uh, like you don't have to. There's a as long as you're keeping up with your input and getting your output that you want. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. And it, it's all about gear and output. That's what, yeah. So th this works if you have a burn, like you talked about burn resource. So this can work. And if you add to that dermoclysis and proctolysis, you do have a, a good recess option. Um, I, I want to put a caveat out there for people who have seen some random bushcraft survivalists videotape themselves doing this. Don't do that. Don't don't do what you kind of see on some of these wazoo options. Make sure you do this scientifically, which this is in PubMed, and just make sure they're on the the left lateral recumbent. Make sure that you don't over infuse, and uh, just monitor the urine output, and you'll um, hopefully be able to evac this guy. So IV sites are notorious for getting infected, and and this falls under circulation, I believe. So in hospital, we are very careful with, with placing IVs by uh, making sure that uh, we, we, we clean it with Hippocleanse uh, or some, some way to clean the skin. And then we put an offsite over top, a, 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 a dermal, a see-through um, dermal tape. In austere environments, we don't have that option. So we teach cling film or saran wrap for, for those of you in North America. And there's 101 reasons to have cling film available, have a roll uh, available to you. But what we teach is we cover this, the, the offsite with this, the, the, the IV site. And what we found is it secures it and allows you to monitor it. But more importantly, it's just keeping sand and stuff from getting into your, your IV site whilst you can still keep an eye on that. And then we'll still wrap the IV site around the thumb. Yeah. Um, so, um, normally I see guys using just op sites, right? Um, but you can definitely run out of that. Uh, the, I guess the downside of just the cling film is the tube is, I don't know, 12, 18 uh -huh. inches long. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So they're not for us. They're, we cut them down. So if you, if you go down to a, a, a normal home, home store and you get them, they're long, aren't they? So we bought a pipe cutter. So I've, I've tried cutting it with a knife, and it just—it's it, possible. It just looks ugly. Uh, so get a pipe cutter, and it makes a really clean cut. And I will cut a normal saran wrap into threes. So now it's ten centimeters wide. So you're right. So that's one problem: is having the saran wrap too wide. But once you have one third of that, what other problems are there, Dennis? You know, I would say early, you know, it's it's okay. It's not going to secure it that well. I mean, unless you really snug down on it, 
you're, you're not really securing your site, so you have to back that up with tape. Not a big problem because just know it is what it is, right? You get to see. Um, yeah. The only thing I can, off the top of my head anyway, is especially with burns, you know, it's, yes, good, you can see it. But because it's taking the air away, um, different anaerobes um, love, you know, anaerobic bacteria, you know, love that space. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head, but um, you make it a really good site for that type of infection. You're right. That does change the problem from aerobic bacteria to anaerobic bacteria. But with, with burns, we cover burns after we've, after we've cooled them. We've covered them with cling film because it reduces pain. It does stop the bacteria floating around the, in the air to land on it. Uh, but it also keeps the fluid from being evaporated in. So we're a big fan of cling film on burn once it's cool. So the first 20 minutes, you're rapidly cooling, warming the casualty, cooling the burn, and then putting cling film in strips on the burn because there's nothing better out. Well, you know, if you have hundreds of euro available and you can buy some of those burn dressings, yeah, there's science behind them. But in austere environments, we don't. So, yeah, yeah I think film is the key, um, like you said, is you cut it into strips. You don't want circumferential wrapping because it's going to swell um, yeah. and, and potentially at least cause a tourniquet-like effect. Uh, Dr. Winston DeMello is, is really big on the pain side of things. You know, he describes... The, the burn pain and and because the nerve endings have been the, the skin is burned down to the nerve endings are now exposed to air and so anytime air hits those nerve endings it's just horrifically painful so by covering it with clean film you stop the air hitting those nerve endings but then there's other the three other benefits as well like keeping water in keeping bacteria out and yeah the, the pain is 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 worth it. So clean film for yeah, tons and tons of reasons. So we do use a clean film to secure it. And we are circumferentially wrapping two or three times on that site to keep it secure. And then here in Europe, the, there's a drug port on which you guys don't have in, in America, which I, I'm kind of shocked. It's so awesome to have that. So, so you, you just tear a little hole in the clean film right above the drug port, port so you can you can access the site without having to uh, remove anything. And I've just noticed with the off-sites, it secures, it does secure better uh, than a cling film wrap, but the site where it, just where it goes into the skin isn't covered. And that's where the bacteria can can travel down the, the catheter. So maybe both options. One, you get the off-site, second, followed it on by cling film. Um, one other option, we've, we've just started trying it out, so I don't know how well it works quite yet, but uh, tattoos, once you get a tattoo, they put that cling film over top, mm. um, but they come in short rolls that are about you know three, four inches wide, and um, that sticks like really well, like that's made nice. to stick and last, you know, for nice. whatever, however long it stays, you know, a couple weeks. So um, that might, that's something that uh, we're we're looking at, and that's more robust. It's probably thicker than a normal uh, clean film, so it won't tear as much. And that's made that's, to last. Moving on to circulation is knowing what the heart's doing. So we'll talk about 
ECGs and as a critical care paramedic, I'm a big fan of them. I, I, I think everyone should have them. And, and with the technology nowadays, there's so many small options for ECGs. This is what I carry in my computer bag. It is, it's about the size of half of my palm and it's has a, a, a little thing for you to see the, see the, um, pulse oximetry as well as a, a two lead. Now, then there's tons of these out there. there. There's, they've been around now for a while and they're just getting better and better. So these check, uh, it's a basically checks one lead at a time. So I found a study in PubMed and it's here. If you want to scan, uh, if you come and you li listen to this podcast later with, uh, with the access to the video as well, this, you can scan the PubMed research on using a smartphone watch or one of these two lead ECGs to get nine leads. And we, uh, we teach this during the eye care course, the uh, intensive care uh, course, and show that you can use the, the watch. No, it doesn't have to be expensive watch anymore. I've got a, a kind of a, a crappy old Samsung watch that still does ECGs. And I do this on myself to uh to check my heart rate or, or, or check um check my own uh because i'm getting old <laughs> uh check my own rhythms i've used this in anger so i i was uh, at a conference in boot in Bidgutsk, uh poland and uh somebody had an acute stress response from some um sims going off and she started wigging out hypervigilant ventilating i used this on her to get at least a two and three lead to, to make sure that there wasn't a cardiac event as well. So, I mean, loads and loads of people have smartwatches now, and you can use this on the Eindhoven Triangle to get nine of your leads. Now, the augmented leads, there is a way to calculate that. And if you look at the study, they'll show you how to do that, which it is arduous, but it is possible to calculate AVL, AVR, and AVF. But in all fairness, if I get my one, two, and three lead, and and maybe the the V four, I'm happy enough on on my uh, cardiac patient. Yeah, um, I have one very similar, but it has a plug in that it, you can have two leads, so you don't have to Even better. You don't, you don't have to yeah. touch to the metal pads. You can just move them around. But nice. uh, which, super, which one I do think, you have? Uh, it's like a. Well, it's a Chinese one. Uh, it's like. Yeah. Amazon, yeah, they all are, yeah. right? Yeah. So not yeah. only, yeah. but the good thing on with the app is you can send it to somebody, you can share it. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you know, at least the provider that you're you're getting advice from can get it, while simultaneously updating the Chinese on your patient. But <laughs> yeah, so I I I have it. So it sends them my phone in a PDF, and then I can easily send that PDF. Now the problem is it winds up being one PDF for each lead, and if yes. if I'm in the office, I can cut and paste and make a at least a nine lead uh, ECG sheet. But uh, hey, you know what? It's better than nothing, and it, it allows you to to see your casualty if you have a cardiac patient. So so old sergeant majors or old team sergeants that are that are walking around some old warrant warrants, it's probably a good idea to have the ability to do cardiac assessments. And in uh, resource limited, so improvised eye wash. We're kind of getting to the end of C circulation and moving more towards prolonged field care. But we can talk about the eye wash option 
uh, use a nasal cannula. And the difficult thing of getting the nasal cannula to work, I mean, you can put it right at the bridge of the, of the nose, of course, so the fluid goes both directions. You don't cross-contaminate the eye. The hard part is getting that oxygen attachment on the other end to something that works. You can't just put it in a Christmas tree and have water come out of it, right? That's just that's used for oxygen. So what we found is you you just get a Nalgene or, or a sports bottle. You shove the end of that, uh, uh, the other end of the, the nasal cannula in, and you have to plug that hole with either tape or uh, some sort of cloth, and then you can get your your fluid running. Urine cache, so this is also part of sea circulation. Urine cache is probably the one of the number one things that you should be on top of and making sure that they have their, their one mil per kilo per hour uh, as coming out. So we teach a whole bunch of different ways of doing this. And I got these pictures from the prolonged field care website where some yolk is using a, a glove and I, I like this photo, a glove with an IV line. And I'm sure all medics and docs and nurses out there have done um, tons and tons of, of urinalysis and, and seen how the stream comes out. Do you think that a stream of urine would be able to go through an IV line? Uh, not so well. I mean, you have to have a vent so on well. the other one at your catch bag, you have to have a vent because um, otherwise it's just going to back up. Yep. And you can try to do the catch the back up with a, with a uh, exam glove, but they break. My favorite is just get a used IV bag, cut a hole, uh, cut a, cut one of the corners off and then use that to, to catch urine and and it's already got a granulated cylinder in it. So you can see precisely how much fluid they, uh, they've come out. Now, this works for blokes. For women, you can use a shiwi. So we don't carry one, do we? But we do carry an eye gel. So a number five eye gel can be used as a shiwi. So you would have, you'd have to get the patient to stand up if you can. If they're in a stretcher, you can lift the head up to like 50 degrees, 60 degrees and try to do the, the shiwi catch where it then dumps into the used IV bag so you can, you can monitor it. But it is possible. Uh, I would suggest having a, and once you use it for a shiwi, put a red piece of tape around it so you don't use it for something else. Yeah. Um, so I've tried, uh, they call it the Texas condom cath. So it's just, hmm. a, just like the name, right? It's a condom that sits over <laughs> top, right? Uh, again, works for males. Yeah. Um, the downside, because everybody just says, well, I'll just stick a Nalgene bottle. Like, okay, okay. Um, but I think catching the urine, not as nearly as big enough, as big of a problem as getting reliable urine output, right? Mm. If you don't have something that goes through the bladder, then you're kind of relying on that bladder to get so large that it pushes open the internal and external sphincter and then they pee, right? Mm. Um, a lot of drugs that we're giving are cholinergic and that causes fluid retention, right? So yeah. it works in that they will, you know, you can catch the urine, but just getting a reliable urine output, like you're gonna have to give so much fluid 
that the bladder expands, and then it, when it contracts, when they finally piss themselves, it's only going to shrink enough that the pressure, that internal sphincter is able to close again, um, yeah. and then it's going to build up again. I think a really reliable way outside of this is just using ultrasound to measure the bladder. You measure length, width, height of the bladder, and that gives you a volume of a cube, and then essentially you cut that in half, that volume in half, and that's at least the estimated uh, bladder volume. Um, the butterfly and maybe some others as well, but there's an automatic feature. You like hit a button yeah, and do, awesome. do, 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 do. Yeah. it calculates it for you. Um, but if yeah, we're man. if we're catching urine, then you're doing a resuscitation. So you need reliable output in order to adjust your treatment by it. And I'm um, I'm sure you can with this, but you just have to understand like you're not going to get urine output every hour if you're waiting for this guy to take a piss. Yep, that's a valid point. Dennis, would you would you use the IQ butterfly measurement as a reliable urine output, even though the urine is still inside the bladder? I mean, if I don't have a Foley um, and I don't have a just a straight cap, so that's one of the things that I, I asked for in our tech set review is putting straight cats in there. Um, they're small, mm. they're cheap. You can have a dozen of them in uh, a very small container and you know you just take one you do periodic uh measurements and yep. uh drain the you know drain the bladder you can put it in whatever container you want and um essentially you just stick it into clean it stick it into a baggie um obviously you want to keep it as close to sterile as you possibly can and you save it. I mean, people do this hmm. as their life, you know, um, you know, paraplegics and, and things yeah. like that. They do this every day, multiple times a day. So it's definitely a thing. And I have now I have control like oh, it's roughly an hour. You know, uh, we're going to drain the bladder, get your measurement and then you know, adjust your treatment. But if I had none of those things, I'm. I would think, again, I thankfully, you know, I've never had to do this for real, um, but measuring the bladder and using that to calculate my fluid volume, I would think would be more reliable than waiting, you know, two hours, three hours for that bladder to finally empty or come to give me something and then have to kind of measure that over. I mean, it could be, especially somebody's volume down, it could be like eight hours before you finally start getting a trend. Again, I've thankfully, I've never been in that spot, but I could imagine if you're just waiting for that pressure to relieve, it's going to take you a while to finally get volume enough to start averaging it over X number of hours. So an ultrasound and a straight calf, we've been focusing on measuring it in as it as it comes out but why yeah now that we have the technology why not do it inside the bladder and then use a straight cap to enter the to get all of the urine out of the bladder you're starting from zero yeah i mean 
it's, oh. once it's in the bladder, like he's not going to absorb it. So like it's, right. it's going to come out. It's just making sure that you have a measurement and then you zero out that the amount is there and then get another measurement. But yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty clever. Um, and is it you know, perfectly accurate? No, a Foley would be a lot closer to accurate or a straight cath would be a lot closer to accurate. But like we need like timely information if you're doing a resuscitation. Uh, other, so we're talking about C-circulation means bleeding and uh, talk about band-aids or plasters. Here on this side of the pond, they're called plasters. In America, they're, in Canada, they're called uh, band-aids. But you can improvise this with uh, just some with some tape, so duct tape. And you can you even do wound closing with duct tape. And I always put holes in the duct tape to make sure the skin can breathe. Because if you put just duct tape on the skin, it's just going to warp the skin. But if you if you put holes in it, it'll help out. And if you're going to use this for closing minor, very, very minor uh, lacerations, you want to clean the laceration first, of course, with, with uh, copious amounts of fluid and everything else. But when you finally close this, I use the benjoin tensioner to make the duct tape last a bit longer. But uh, I'm not sure what, what are you using for improvised uh, wound um, closures. I've done this a, a bunch of times as a, a, a redneck at heart. I've duct taped my uh, different parts of my body closed uh, many times. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it works. It, it just works. Do you poke holes in it or do you just let it ruin your, well, your skin? I, uh, that's actually a much smarter way. I just let it ruin my skin. <laughs> it works. Yeah. It, it might be yeah. redneck, but it, you know, just uh, if, if, if like a paper towel or something underneath to help absorb uh, fluid. Yeah. So maybe that yep. added space allowed some air to get in. But uh, yep. yeah, just duct tape it. Yeah, big, big fan of just a paper towel. And everyone's worried about sterility. Well, the wound's not sterile. Just cover it. You'll be fine. So let's talk about irrigation. Definitely part of sea circulation. And we irrigate wounds. Uh, rule of thumb. At the college is three liters, three liters of water you're willing to put in your eye. So you're not going to put any any other other thing into the wound than that. So growing up in the 60s and 70s, I'm sure it's the same with you, Dennis, iodine for everything, right? You know, the, mom, the mom was like, oh, you cut yourself, tons of iodine. We know it kills bacteria. Well, now we know it kills everything. So when you put uh, iodine or our uh, and anything else is going to kill bacteria is going to kill you as well. So, um, no bleach, iodine, no, 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 just water. And if you want to make 0.9%, brilliant, but you can just put, put normal water. And there's, I, I like to say, you know, so when I teach this, what causes infections and it's three things. It's bacteria count, it's bacteria hotel, and it's bacteria food. So if you can get rid of those three things, you're not going to have a, a wound that gets infected. So bacteria count means that you're going to use three liters of, of potable water to irrigate out this wound to get rid of the bacteria that's there, and a lot of them. Bacteria hotel is where they can hide from your body. So any foreign foreign body type gravel or, or anything sticks, you got to get rid of those because the bacteria is going to hide from them. 
And the bacteria food is dead tissue. The bacteria love dead tissue. So when my mom, who was a nurse, funnily enough, put iodine into my scrape, she was killing a lot of my blood, my, 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 my cells that would then make food for the bacteria, losing cool points. So now we're just irrigating, pulling all the, the bits out if we can, and then uh, we don't want to kill any more of the, of the cells. And then, then we can close it or do a, a wet-to-dry dressing. Yeah. Um, I would, the only thing I would add is be careful of the amount of pressure are you using? Um, mm. You know, if you're putting, if you're doing like the 60 cc uh, syringe, you know, with like an 18 gauge or something like that, uh, you can definitely generate enough pressure to actually push bacteria deeper in. Yep. So just uh, low pressure, large volume. Um, yeah, just essentially just clean water. Soap and water works as well. Um, but uh, just lo yeah, just low I'll, volume yeah. or low soap, soap will kill kill the your cells as well. Soap and water on the outside of the on the skin around the area definitely yeah um, um, big fan of yeah, big yeah. Fan of um, but just clean it you know and if you do if you do put iodine or you do put just you know dish soap or it's like antibacterial whatever you know lavender scented soap. Um, Make sure you go back and irrigate that stuff out, you know, so it's okay to use regular soap and water. It's okay to use iodine as a scrub, but make sure you irrigate all that out real well. Um, we, you know, like you said, with your, you know, three liters uh, or, or more of irrigation. And this, this splash guards are really important because you don't know where this yoke has been. So... Even if it's your teammate, you don't know where this guy has been. So splash guards are really important. And in hospital, when I've worked in the A&E department there, they have these specially made splash guards that fit perfectly onto IV bags. Well, I'm not going to carry that. I'm just, I'm, I'm a lazy medic. I'm not going to carry anything I don't have to. So my favorite thing is to get a Ziploc bag and cut half, uh, cut a corner off and then stick my my needle my catheter through that corner and then i have something that i can i can keep from splashing stuff in my eyes um you can you can try using your hand but it's uh, it's not the best option out there uh there are a lot of irrigation options the wilderness medical society has said that 18 gauge catheters are probably the best option because it causes 18 psi but dennis you're right you, you're even though it's an 18 gauge catheter you're not torquing on the on the end of that syringe. You're just doing a, a normal kind of a dribble or, or a bit of pressure because you don't want to shove that bacteria into into crevices, do you? And and I found uh, Camelback is fantastic. Camelback is is a good way to 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 make this happen. Just this is a picture of one of our students in Malta using a used IV bag holder you know the IV IVs come in the IV bag protector and he used one of those as a splash guard that was quite clever so let's talk about hypothermia so in the March algorithm we've, we're down to H hypothermia head injury there's uh, improvised neck braces now I'm a big fan we don't use the store-bought neck braces at all they're they cause ICP but 
the, uh, the there's a link to a study here that I got off of PubMed where using a sweater can ha help stabilize the the neck and and basically remind the patient not to move the neck. Uh, it's m more of a reminder than it is inhibitor. Um, what are you guys using for neck immobilization? We're tactical medics, so we don't use anything. But uh, now I've seen uh, boots on the side uh, to help mm. stabilize. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's usually or some kind of just clothing, padding, something. But instead of going around the neck, it's just more to keep their head in line. Yeah, that works. Uh, boots with sand in it. I've, I've seen that works just to keep. And it, it's it's not to mobilize anything. It's just to remind the oak that he's or she is injured. So, so not to move the head around a bit. Hypo wrap. This is pretty important. Everyone gets wraps no matter where they are. A traumatic patient in Tanzania with with 39C is going to be hypothermic. So we, we definitely need to hypo wrap everyone. And well, HPMKs are, are awesome, but we're not seeing these in austere environments. So we teach a burrito wrap, which is very similar to uh, what we probably seen. Or you, do you do you teach improvised hypo wrap as well? Um, yes, um, but the HPMK, just in my experience, HPMK, the ready heat blanket, that little system, like it is, mm. does not work that well. Um, oh. and, and I'm working in North Carolina in freaking July. And when we're doing our, our real runs, um, I've watched our patients like lose, you know, two, three, five degrees body temperature. Um, just because of, you know, the narcotics, the blood loss, the, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. Yep. Um, so we use a, like a lot of uh, wool blankets. And one thing on top of that we'll use is a, a hair dryer. Um, and what we'll do is we'll make an improvised bear, a bear hugger. Nice. And so nice. if you imagine patient litter underneath it, underneath that yep. we'll drape a a garbage bag and we'll close so it's open at the head closed at the foot and we'll blow hot air into that um do have to kind of not remove padding underneath the patient but maybe thin it out some so that the heat comes up um mm. and then pad specifically you know your pressure points but um with that hair dryer like we have definitely gotten people from like really cold to like normal thermic in a, I wouldn't say a short period of time, but within a, you know a couple of hours of doing it. Um, but uh, just in my experience, nice. and this is in North Carolina, you have a real sick patient, like they're gonna get cold, and you have to jump on mm. that thing so quick. So a tactical hair dryer. Yes. Um, I got that from the Navy SEALs, and so um, of they have them. They know about hair dryers, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, windblown hair. Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to have to try that. That's uh, that's fantastic. But it, but it work. That works really well. Unfortunately, mm. you also have to have power. So, yeah, but if you're rolling, if you're out of a, a clinic, uh, a roll two, or even a roll one e. But you're going to have generator power, or you may have generator power. 
Hopefully. And a lot of places I worked in Africa, there, there is power in yeah. pretty remote areas. So you, you take over a, a clinic or you take over a house, uh, you know, yeah, you'll have it. So, no, it's, it's viable. Definitely yeah. viable. You should, um, you should publish that. Yes, of course. Um, but uh, I've not yet found, like, uh, like battery packs that have the, uh, the outlets in them, not the USBs. Yeah. Um, but none of yeah. them have been able to generate the amperage to... Uh, run a hairdryer yeah. off in it. Tons of watts coming out of that thing. Yeah. Um, and and hair, not that I'm avid fan of hairdryers or know, know much about them, but if, if I remember correctly, don't they have a an automatic shutoff if it gets too hot? How do you yeah. keep that, the, the, uh, how to, to short circuit or, or to click that safety device that these hairdryers have to make sure that they don't overheat? So, um, Never like shove it in with the patient, right? Because it's going to get so hot, you're gonna you're gonna burn your patient. So uh, if you imagine okay. the litter, you dangle, you secure it where the handle would be on the litter, and it's you got some space around it to blow the air. Right. Um, yep. And then, so one problem I've had is fluids coming down, whether that be vomit or whatever. Um, but fluids coming down, and if that gets into your hair dryer, it's going to short circuit. So, right. um, in so imagine this wind tunnel, this plastic wind tunnel I've built underneath it. You put like uh, you put a hole in the bag, and then you put some kind of weight in the bag, so there's a low point, uh, and the fluid nice. will drain down that and go away from your patient, the head of your patient, nice. away from the hair dryer. So you are. Enclosing the the pipe wrap around your hair dryer, um, not like tight getting, around it. Not, it's open, not tight around it. It's oh, open. Okay, at the head so that keeps it from tripping. Got it. Right. Yeah. So you you're just constantly blowing warm air towards the patient's core, and if it escapes around it, that's fine. Um, I'm trying to capture that on my top blanket, where on top of the patient. So I encapsulate that. So any hot air is kind of caught and always around the patient. Yeah. Wow. And you just have to measure constantly what's what's this what's their core temperature to see if this is working. Do I need to add more insulation? Do I need to start warming the IV bags? Um, things like that. Um, I've seen. I haven't done it, but I've heard anyway of. Warming up the Foley bag, so you warm the Foley bag, mm. you raise the Foley bag above the patient, the urine runs back into the bladder, you let oh. that sit for 10 minutes, you know, and then you lower huh. the Foley bag, the urine comes back, fills up your Foley bag, hmm. warm it again, and you keep playing this game. Wow. So a lavage. Yeah, kind of like a lavage, a, ur uh, a urine lavage, um, but you're yeah. <laughs> warming up the bladder, and so that's close to the core, and that's helping. That's more of an active rewarming than hmm. just warm air and blankets. Yeah. Also, publish that one, and you'll you'll make some name, you make a name, and make a make some waves. That's a really clever. So we, we're not teaching any of that uh, the wazoo stuff. We're just doing the general. Uh, burrito wrap, um, but uh, what we've found with the burrito wrap is making sure that all the leads off your devices are coming up past the shoulder, 
So we put the BP cuff upside down. So the, the pipes are running straight up towards the head. We put the stethoscope right underneath the BP cuff into the crook of the neck, tape it there. And even when you inflate the BP cuff, it doesn't occlude the, the, the lumen in the stethoscope. So you can still get a, a BP without having to open the guy up. So part of the problem we've had is losing so much heat that you just gained whenever you try to do an assessment or you're too, so everything, your three lead ECGs, your SpO2, your, your pulse, everything is, is coming up to right next to is the ear. So you don't have to open up anything to assess them unless you're doing uh, urine or something like that. Well, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to open it up. You're going to have to, because let's say you got a guy with a junctional in there. If you ignore it, like I promise you, it's come loose. And uh, yep. you're going to have to open it. You're just going to have to work. Like, like I can't underestimate how hard you're going to have to work to keep a, a, a real casualty warm. And you just have mm. to be willing and think about things to keep more heat around him. That's one of the benefits of live tissue, isn't it? Uh, you, 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 until you see that, the, the seven years I spent teaching with, with Dr. Hagman and DMI, I learned tons of this kind of stuff that, so the sim man is a hundred grand, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an amazing bit of kit, but it's just not going to get cold if you, if you ignore it. So um, this, yeah, this, these are lessons that must be learned. Absolutely right. must be learned. And you get to see yeah. with LTT, you get to see that lethal triad, you know, he's mm. cold. He keeps bleeding. Why isn't he making a clot? Because he's freaking cold. Warm him up. You know, readdress the bleed, trying to get it to stop and get him warm. Simulations aren't quite doing that yet. Yeah, I mean they but, can't. Uh, they can't. And they can't yeah. they can't simulate the weird things that happen. Yep, I agree. So yeah, that was hypograph. Let's move on to uh, prolonged field care. And this one, I mean, there's tons and tons and tons you can do in prolonged field care of, on improvisation. So one of my favorites is the tuning fork for fractures. So as if you have a 128 hertz tuning fork, and this is, this is in PubMed, so I'm not making this up, but I've also used this extensively and had really good results. So like a, an avulsion fracture on, on, a, on a fibula, this is, this is a, a good success rate on how the, how this works when you hit the the tuning fork and you put the end of that tuning fork on the uh, medial malleus it's extremely painful because some reason the 128 hertz vibrating when it vibrates against that avulsion fracture just causes the bones to move and it and it it's really hurt i i can vouch personally on this on my own avulsion fracture that the the tuning fork will definitely help you delineate is it a is it a strain or a sprain or or a fracture but on top of that you can use this for long bones so you have a stethoscope for this this guy has a tuning fork at the at the ankle so you have your stethoscope along the tibia on the, the up by the knee and as you move your stethoscope closer to your tuning fork the sound will get louder but if you are on the other side of a fracture the sound won't be very loud until you pass that fracture point. And then immediately 
your tuning fork will be louder. And then you can do it the other way. It's, it's fun either way. So you, you go up from, so you have your tuning fork and your stethoscope side by side, and you slowly move your stethoscope up the leg, and then suddenly the sound drops dramatically. There's your fracture point. It's, it's a fantastic option. Is this something that you guys have used in the schoolhouse? Um, I used to talk about this when I first started. Um, and it makes sense, like the 128 hertz, that causes resonance within the bone. And whenever you get resonance in any kind of structure, it vibrates, right? Yep. Um, test, you know, the Tesla thing where you tore down the bridge um, or the building, you've had a device that caused resonance. Um, mm. So it makes that that makes sense to me. Um, another option that doesn't make your patient want to slap you in the face would be ultrasound. And you dunk the ultrasound yep. or dunk the limb in water, which of course we're just carrying water in containers everywhere. <laughs> um, but uh, with ultrasound, you can actually see the fracture. And you can, you know, um, now is it important to know exactly where the, the fracture line is in like a tib fib or, uh, you know, radius ulna or humerus or whatever? No, not really. But if you're thinking about, you know, the uh, like the scaphoid in the hand or mm. um, some of the bones in the ankle, that those can be surgical emergencies per se, um, because like the scaphoid, um, the more I guess the more uh, distal it is, the perfusion for the scaphoid comes into the hand or sorry, into the hand. And then back this yep. way, it gets that, that's how it gets its perfusion. So the more distal the fracture is, the closer to the source of the perfusion to that scaphoid, which means like you really need to get that pinned or you're going to lose your, the bone will die and you'll lose that scaphoid. Hmm. So, um, and then um, there's some bones in the ankle that, that also do that. And I've forgotten the name of them, but being able to visualize that with ultrasound can tell you, is this somebody that I have to evac or can I just put them in a thumb spica splint and it'll heal? An, an ultrasound can be used without dunking in the bucket of water. You just get a hundred mil bag of IV. You take, take the bag out of the protective bag and then you put uh, ultrasound gel on the, on the place you're looking. Then you put the bag then you put more ultrasound gel, and then you put your ultrasound. And that's going to space it out enough where you can see. So the tip-fib fracture is right on the skin, isn't it? And if you just do ultrasound right on the anterior side, you're not seeing anything. It's just you can't see that shallow. But you can throw a bag of saline, 250 or, or 100. It just make sure you put gel everywhere. Right? Gel first, then bag, then gel. The rule of ultrasound is you need more gel, I mean, regardless of what you're doing. So I would take that ultrasound over the 128 meg megahertz ultra, uh, the tuning fork, of course, but um, always nice to have extra tricks in the bag. So let's talk about losing your ET tube connector. So I don't know how many times you guys have had this where you're, you're BVMing something, somebody or you're, you have the tube in and then you, you, you lose your, the, the, the the bag comes off because maybe you're shocking the guy and then you try to put the bag back on the ET tube and the connector has been lost and you're 
you're, you're kneeling on it or it's, it's already it's in the dirt. So you can improvise by wrapping 12 pieces of 12 wraps of normal um, cloth tape and around the ET tube and you'll be able to fit that ET tube back into the BVM and continue your cardiac arrest. Have you used this or do you use just normal tape everything, tape the hell out of it to make it work or? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much pretty uh, knuckle draggerish. Um, we'll duct tape the crap out of anything. Um, but uh, this is probably a, a smarter way to do it. Um, in hospital, I've I've kind of had a situation where we've lost the ET tube connector. And I just remember being at the patient's foot and looking up at the physician at the head trying to do the airway and the ET tube is gone or the uh, connector is gone. And we just kind of had a moment that we both panicked and I, there just <laughs> happened to be another ET tube next to us. So I like ripped it open and like no, tossed it to him. Um, nice. But uh, it, <laughs> when it happens, like it's a surprise for everybody. Um, but I think having a, just understanding, Hey, you know, put some tape on that. Um, hopefully you're, you're not bagging the patient actively when this happens. Yeah, how long is it going to take you to do 12 wraps of tape around an ET tube? Meanwhile, the, the guy's not breathing. And right. It's, yeah, you're losing cool points. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ultrasound probe covers, and you can use a surgical glove, not an exam glove. A surgical glove, cut one of the fingers off. And uh, Dennis, you said that the trick is put gel first, yeah. then the, the, the finger of the glove, and then more gel. You tried yeah. this last week. Yeah. So I'm an idiot. So I just heard use surgical glove finger. And so I stretched that over the end and I put it down on uh, uh, a patient's chest and I didn't see anything. And I was like, ah, Albrecht doesn't know what the frick he's talking about. And so I ripped it off. Um, eventually I went back and I tried it to figure out like, why am I an idiot? And then I, you know, squirted gel in the glove, then put that on, which is a trick, by the way. Um, and then use more gel, and then it, and then it worked. The anything with ultrasound, you you have to remove all air between the ultrasound and what you're looking at. So gel gel first, then the finger of the glove, and then gel, and that way you can uh, you can continue on. So the reason we do this is, I mean, if you got a bloody patient, you just uh, and it's my personal IQ butterfly. I paid two grand for it. So I don't I don't want to get somebody's um, gunk on it. So this is a really good trick to have a surgical glove in your ultrasound probe case, and uh, just to make sure that you are not putting HIV or Hep C or anything else on my on the probe. You can improvise ultrasound gel. So the whole premise we said was you must remove all the air between your ultrasound probe and what you're looking at. So you can you can do this with a whole bunch of stuff. Soap with with shampoo, cornstarch, uh, KY jelly, any anything at all, as long as it doesn't have bubbles in it. So the uh, the soap option, I've had good and bad option, uh, good and bad success rates because some soap is foamy, isn't it? So you are are the shampoo will come out with with holes in it, and you start looking at, with your ultrasound, and you're like this is ugly. And then you're like, Oh, that's because there's little, uh, little, little bubbles in, in my, what I'm using to improvise. 
and I'm losing cool points. So, no, you you got to make sure that it doesn't have any bubbles in it. T. Uh, so in, in in our prolonged field care, we use Hitman, and T and Hitman is uh, tidy tubes and tidy. So we need to make sure that we keep our patient from looking uh, with wires everywhere. And as a critical care paramedic, we got tons and tons of wires from five or six different machines going in front of, and it looks like spaghetti. And then, you know, you, you, you move the patient or, 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 or something happens and one of those comes up, you don't know which machine it is that's, that's, that's beeping at you and you got to follow the wire. It's, it's just a headache. So you use an exam glove and you cut up strips or use some of the fingers of the exam gloves and you tie the wires together so you it doesn't look like spaghetti. So you can use this on a 12 lead ECG as well as your uh, SpO2 and and your your syringe pump and your and your vents and and there's tons and tons of wires. You can use a glove to try to make uh, make it look a little less uh, yeah. chaotic. So uh, especially when you're dealing with IVs and IV drips of different things, um, I mean you can end up you know with three four. Uh, more IV mm -hmm. lines, and they just get all tangled up. People checking things, people moving things, and especially during transport, um, it's a nightmare. It gets to be a nightmare. Yep. Um, you know, uh, using a, a finger a glove or you know a tabbed piece of tape or some Velcro or clothespin, doing clothespin, clothespin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, super smart. Um, I would say. Just as far as just organization works super well. Um, be careful if you're tying your IV lines because you can't trace it anymore. So what I do, mm -hmm. I label the bag and then I label wherever the admin ports are. Nice. So nice. this is ketamine. This is resuscitation. This is whatever. Um, so that when you have to do pushes or things like that, um, you know which is which. And so you're not shutting off one, injecting into another, thinking, you know, you have the same line. So just labeling, labeling your lines, and then you can secure the crap out of them because you already know which is which. And you won't accidentally catch one, which we all have, and it keeps them, keeps them secure. That's definitely part of prolonged field care. You need to make sure that your office area that you're working in, your desk looks nice and tidy. So that means all your wires are, are kind of going the right where it needs to be and other paperwork's in order. Um, improvised autoscope. So prolonged field care, we need to look in uh, nooks and crannies. So this is something we can use uh, a, a signal mirror with a light source that you can, and it, it takes three hands. So one hand, when you look in the, in the ear, you have to make sure that the, the ear gets pulled back so you straighten the, the canal that you're looking in. So one person, you have to get somebody, 18 Bravo or somebody to pull back on the ear and you can use the, the hole in the middle of your signal mirror to look in and then you can use the normal torch or, or flashlight to uh, to look uh, down to the ear canal or in the nose. Uh, measuring marks on your stethoscope. I'm a big fan of, of putting some centimeter marks on the side of my stethoscope so I don't, if I have to measure something that I, I don't have to look around to see where my uh, so my pen will, might have it on there, but it's, it's good. And then the trick is you want to put uh, tape over top of that, uh, see-through clear tape to make sure that those marks don't get uh, knocked off. 
improvised tweezers. So in, in well, definitely in wilderness medicine, we get tons and tons of, of things sticking out of us. And uh, tweezers are, are the best option available. But if you don't have that, you can use three coins. So three quarters if you're in America, uh, three loonies if you're in Canadian, can, Canadian, and here in Europe, three 50-cent pieces. And you offset them in such a way that you can use the two outer coins as a very good tweezer. So if you need to pull out uh, something stuck in, a, a, a splinter or something like that, you can improvise the tweezers to pull out uh, what, or what, grab whatever you need to grab. Another improvisation I like is making sure, this is definitely prolonged field care, is making sure I know where the hands are on, on a casualty. I don't know how many times in my 35 years I've been doing this, I've stepped on or kneeled on someone's hand. So I, I like the hands kind of out of the way. And, and I used to, to say, uh, tape the thumbs together, but the tape, you know, get, they get sweaty because they're shocky or the tape doesn't work. So one of my trips to Ukraine, I saw them do this. And, and what they do is they use a cravat or three, a triangular bandage, and they wrap it around both wrists so they the, the wrists the, the hands don't flop out and you kneel on them and, but what's really cool with this if you if you think if you have a semi patient semi-conscious patient or somebody is completely conscious as soon as you immobilize the hands their nose is going to itch every time so you can't do soft restraints on on casualties because they need to kind of in, involve the the environment they're in they need to be that move their hands around a bit and then scratch your nose. So this Ukrainian technique, I've I've stolen and I've, I'm now using that just to to make sure that uh, conscious or unconscious casualties, their hands aren't flopping around a bit. So what what are you using to bind the hands, Dennis? Um, usually either just tucking them in in your packaging, just keeping them tucked in. Um, I would say just be cautious of the agitated unconscious patient because. Uh, just any agitated patient, just keep in mind, like now you've made a big club and they can use both hands to beat mm. you to death with. So uh, if you have a really agitated patient, keeping them separate, one arm, one down uh, will help as far as um, nice. keeping control of the patient. Moving on, uh, improvised splinting, Sam splints are definitely something you need, but if you run out of them, you need to be able to improvise splinting. So bandaging material. So the first thing we talked about was improvised tourniquets, and we do that with improvised bandaging. So we make improvised bandages by getting a T-shirt and just start cutting in a spiral. And you can, a, a, a T-shirt, you can make something like a 15 feet long strip of of bandaging material, as long as it's not any narrower than your your palm, so 10, 10 centimeters. So you can use this for splinting. And you can also improvise triangular bandages, and this is what we teach in, 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 in Malta. So you can, uh, we, we cut up a shirt, we, we cut up, uh, we use a bed sheet, and we'll use a triangle bandage, our last one possibly before we use that, to, as a form to trace out more triangular bandages, but we always add another 10 centimeters to the triangular bandage because this, I'm, I'm not a small guy, so the triangular bandages that, that are out there are made for your 60, 
60 kilogram person, aren't they? And most of us walking in, in, in remote environments and doing offshore work, we're kind of big guys. So why not make a bigger triangle bandage when you make an improvisation? So you just want to make it a bit larger than the, the normal ones we have. Um, what are, are you using triangle advantages or what, what are you using I mean, for your disability we, stuff? Yeah, I mean, we definitely, we have our cravats and triangular bandages. Um, I've taken, you know, just uniforms, take the bottom edge of the uniform, pin it up to the shoulder, um, and that makes your mm -hmm. sling. Um, but I, like you mentioned, just cutting a triangular bandage bigger. Like, I've never personally run into the situation where it's like, I have so much material, I wish this was a smaller uh, cravat. Um, you know, you can always just cut it if it's too much, but... Uh, True. But definitely plenty of material. And I think just even spending just a moment thinking about how you can take that shirt and make it into, you know, a nice strip of cloth or, you know, the pant leg or the whatever. And just spending a moment thinking about how you can do that is eventually will pay off. I, I think it's important to have, we call it dirt time, time, time on the ground doing this whole so even if it means your your family members or or somebody at the pub, so just try it out. Just grab some stuff and and cut them up and and see what works, and get really comfortable with that because you never know when when you might need it. So improvised splinting we can use. Uh, you mentioned the the using your own shirt. Uh, WMS ha, has some good discussions on using your own shirt for mobilization and an upper extremity injury. So you can also use magazines, surprisingly strong. Once you roll up a magazine or make it into a U shape, you can use that for some splinting. Uh, I always have to mention duct tape. Everyone loves saying, oh, just uh, use duct tape for an ankle. Uh, no, no circumferential duct taping ever. It, it's just uh, the, the risk for, for um, swelling injuries is, is too big. Improvised litters. So WMS have some some good history good research on using uh jumpers or or sweaters or, or jackets or shirts and and in my experience of working with this the long you have to have long sleeve and you have to tuck in the long sleeve of the jacket inside to stabilize otherwise it tears it it, it just doesn't doesn't work um what what has been in your experience with some of the improvised litters um just my experience, um, everybody thinks of them, especially like the tubular nylon, uh, like the backpack type um, evacuation, um, especially when you're talking about like the, the different, like really small unit people. Um, but they always think, oh yeah, I'll just do this, I'll just do that. And they might know how to do it, but they never actually carried a casualty with it. And so, you know, thankfully, in the course that I'm in, you know, I give them an opportunity to do the thing that you believe in, and this is part of your plan. Go ahead and do it. And each and every time, they're like, "This freaking sucks!" Like, we're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna bring a litter, you know. Um, so I would say, yeah. whatever plan you have, test it out. Like, find out, you know, mm -hmm. with with something like that, the guy's gonna, you end up. You're ending. You're going to end up essentially in a hammock where the poles squish into your patient because there's no cross 
uh, support mm. holding that litter yeah. out. So, which is okay. Um, just have to understand that this is what's going to happen, you know, um, and yeah. find out how, like, you're going to have to have four people with that. Probably, I bet. Uh, definitely. In, in Mountain Rescue, 16 people is the minimum that they'll take. 16 people. And that's that's if they have a, a Stokes basket with a, a wheel on it. Um, so you mentioned the, the, the using the sheet on, 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 on one pole and, and trying to have a hammock type thing. It's, it's just not going to work if you don't have something keeping that hammock from collapsing in on itself. Yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. super common, especially at least from what I've heard, like in Asia, um, I just talked to a guy in Burma and like, that's the normal thing that they do. Um, but uh, having some, especially if you're talking about somebody who's got some kind of chest trauma and you're folding them into this hammock, uh, he's not going to breathe so well, you know? Yeah. Yep. So that's the challenge, isn't it? You got it. You got a critical casualty. He's not getting out unless you put him in this this hammock litter, but you put him in his hammock litter and he's going to crump on you. He's going to he's going to start circling the drain. So what, what do you do? Do you walk five minutes and then and then lay him down so he can breathe for a bit and then check vitals? And it, yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, can you, you know, on inside that hammock, can you put like a, uh, you know, a puss pad or, a, a, you know, a um, backpackers yeah, pad yeah. in there yeah. to help? give it a little bit of rigidity of, of some kind and kind of, you know, push those sides out a little bit. So duct tape as is mentioned in wilderness medical society for a litter. And, and I've tried this and it, it doesn't work because both poles are closed in on each other and it starts squishing the casualty from the side. So any improvised litter, you, you need to have some way to keep it open so it doesn't crush the casualty. And who carries that much duct tape? What is that? Two rolls of duct tape to, to make a litter. Um, other other improvised things, uh, keeping vials safe. Uh, how many morphine bottles have you, or vials have you broken in your career? Uh, uh, a lot. Uh, yeah. A lot. Uh, so one option is using a, a barrel of a 10 mil syringe and keeping your, your morphine in there just to, to make sure it doesn't break. And uh, the last few points I have for improviser are coming from our field guide. The uh, corn field guide, page 308, we talk about the field hermetocrit. You can use a heparinized capillary tube and spin it at, uh, about 4,500 times is what I calculated. And, uh, and you, can, you can just do an improvised uh, centrifuge and to get a, a rough idea of a hermetocrit. And uh, this is something that uh, we teach in Malta. And, and, and what I found is you need to tie one end of that improvised hermetocrate to a door handle or to a tree or something like that, and then pull. It's a hell of a lot easier than trying to do two hands pulling in opposite directions. Uh, I'm not an SF guy anymore. I don't have the, the arm strength. So uh, do it, make, make it easier on yourself and, and put one end of this spinning hermetocrate onto a, a solid device and it'll be a lot easier um have, have you have you tried this dennis uh no i haven't i haven't i mean it makes so, sense just make sure that that uh a that uh 
that tube is secure because once you start spinning it, like it's going to, and you haven't, yeah. it's going to sling out. Yeah. So we, we do double of the, of the normal putty that goes in the, the, um, the hermetic or the, the, the um, centrifuge. And then we use duct tape over the end and it generally works pretty well. And then just got to be careful when you open it up again. Uh, improvised clotting. Duke's method is, is from the World Health Organization. Duke's method of estimated clotted time. You poke a hole in the earlobe and you see how long it takes for the bleeding to stop. And if it, it, if it takes more than like three and a half minutes to stop bleeding, you have a coagulation problem. The, the problem with this test, it, it only gives you one variable, and it's, it's not very specific, but it's something that we found on the World Health Organization. But uh, is um, there any, anything else that you really want to cover? Uh, we, can, we can stop there, brother. Okay. You know me, I'll just keep going and going and going. I, there's like three slides left. We'll, okay. we'll stop at that. But uh, we're at and, uh, uh, and you two can and a half. Out how to end this thing. No way. Yeah, sorry, mate. All right. That's all right. That's all right. It was a good one. But, uh, yeah. you know, I think important with all of this practice, like you can't just have this like a, a card in your bag that says, hey, do these things and then just follow it. Like it, if you do that, you're going to in the time when you really need it to happen, it's going to fail because you haven't practiced it. You got to practice it. Yeah. Find out the finer points of its use and implementation, and these things I think we're going to work out a lot better for you. Dirt time. You need to spend yep. time doing these skills. Yep. Cool. Thanks, Dennis. Hey, thank you very much yeah. for coming on. It's almost like a Joe Rogan podcast here. It's like two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for the invite, brother. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.